Welcome to the Megalithic Marvels podcast. Hey, D. Olson here, your host and founder of megalithicmarvels.com. Thanks so much for joining me on my journey of reconstructing the prehistoric past. In this episode, I feature part two of an interview that I did in 2018 with Gary Wayne, author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. In this episode, Gary breaks down the following. Giants before and after Noah's flood, the Nephilim Moors, famous giants of the Bible, and physical evidence for giants, and much more in part two of this interview. But first, I want to give you two quick announcements. So last month, I visited the ancient Mayan city of Chichen Itza on Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. It was an amazing expedition. And I have just released my first 4K video on YouTube from this trip called Chichen Itza, the Ossuary, which takes you up close to this incredible structure at this site known as the Ossuary or the High Priest's Tomb. And as you watch it, I share some very interesting discoveries and facts about this structure and what was found inside it and also below it. So just search for Megalithic Marvels on YouTube or click the link in the show notes of this podcast. Also, if you are on Instagram, join the 64,000 plus others and follow Megalithic Marvels to see the most dynamic photos and videos available of the world's greatest megaliths, ancient sites, and hybrid humanoids. I recently featured a very rare photograph that I took from inside the Paracas Museum of Peru of an ancient elongated skull that possesses approximately 25% more cranial mass than normal human skulls. Obviously, cradle headboarding can alter the shape of a skull, but it cannot produce more cranial mass. So as you look at this picture on Instagram, Ask yourself, was this being a hybrid that possibly descended from the Nephilim of Genesis 6 that we're going to talk about in a minute with Gary Wayne? So just search for Megalithic Marvels on Instagram or click the link in the show notes. Well, let's get to part two of my interview with Gary Wayne now. Genesis 6-4 And there's other scriptures like we read, Numbers states the giants were on the earth in those days, but also afterward, meaning after the flood. And and in Numbers 13, we see, you know, as the Israelite spies are spying out the land, these references to the Anakim. Um, From what you can glean from the scriptures, Gary, uh, how do you think these Nephilim hybrids were most likely to resurface again after the flood? Was it? Was it more fallen angels coming and doing what they did before by breeding with human women, or was there something else? Yeah, and we also need to take into account that not only does it say they were both before and after, um, if we look at what God says about destroying um, all life on the earth, he's going to destroy all the life he created. And if you want to be a little bit legalistic on that, it's the fallen angels, the rebellious angels who create the Nephilim. So either 
way. Somehow, somehow they show up after the flood. So I prefer a second incursion, a second impassioned incursion. And for the people who may not be aware that the angels who mated with human females, they were sentenced to the abyss for their crimes. And these are the ones that are going to be released out of the abyss in the end time, as it shows in Revelation 9. So if there was a second incursion, this would have been the ones that did not have a uh, violation uh, with the laws of creation and with human females. And you know, in Revelations, we're told there are 100 million angels, and it could be even more that, that uh, were created. Um, and uh, a third of them are shown in Revelation 12, at least by the point of the end time, will have rebelled. Uh, Enoch only talks about 200 watchers that went to Mount Hermon. Uh, out of this number and we also know they went to more you know any human females they wanted to create so we there wasn't all the fallen angels that violated and went were locked in the abyss so that meant some were still around after the flood and so what i like for my first understanding that keeps everything more easily intact is that there's a second violation probably at sodom um, which is one of the reasons why it would have been destroyed uh, later on, after it had reached its full corruption. And, of course, the Gnostics look at Sodom as the city of light and a replanting of this demigod spirit after the flood. The second way I would look at that would be plausible in my mind as well, although I prefer the first, would be somehow on an ark or somehow with the gods and fallen angels warning uh, these Nephilim, because we have accounts like the Epic of Gilgamesh, and, and Gilgamesh is two-thirds God, one-third human. He's, he's partners Enneked and two-thirds God, one-third human. They're created after the flood, even though on the Dead Sea Scrolls 4Q531 through 534, you'll have Gilgamesh's name mentioned before the flood. We don't know whether this is the same Gilgamesh. Could be, could not be. Either or, you either have a recreation or a survival in Epic... The Epic of Gilgamesh is talking about Apnaptishtin or Enziazudra, who is the archetypical Nephilim king or Anunnaki king of the Sumerian tradition, and his family, who are all Nephilim, that are going to survive on the flood. So the Epic of Gilgamesh is similar on a macro level, but not on the detail level. This is a, clearly a survival of Nephilim as opposed to humans. Just as another quick one is the Greek flood story with Deucalion and Pyrrha. Deucalion is the son of Prometheus, and there's two Prometheuses. One's a giant titan, and one is a, a titan god. Either way, Prometheus is Nephilim. So another giant flood story. So you have human and giant flood stories surviving all around the world. And that would be a bit plausible for me, because when you look at Rephaim or Anakim, or uh, Avim, or Horim, or all the, all, all the different names that we have listed for the giants after the flood, the different tribes, none of them go back to the table of nations with Noah, right? And you have Seir, who is part of the Horim, who comes out of nowhere to intermarry with the descendants of Esau, right? And you have Gog and Magog, which are typically... Um, giant names out of Greek mythology that the descendants of Japheth either name their children after or intermarry with the giants. And the descendants of Canaan intermarry with these Rephaim, Anakim, Avim, Ozim, all these different names in the Middle East and in the Covenant land in particular. 
And again, we don't have a reference to where they came from. So those would be the two most plausible ones. I know some people think that some of the wives um, carried Nephilim DNA with them that caused them, but that uh, is, I suppose, is possible. We don't have scripture to support that either. And it just seems at odds in my perspective, although I do recognize it's possible that if you're doing a clean start, why would you do that, right, with, with humans? Um, but it's certainly another possibility. You say that the Israelites identified the post-Diluvian giants as Anakites and Rephites, even though they were universally under, understood the giants were descendants of the anti-Diluvian Nephilim. So you kind of just uh, hit there, Gary, on different names of giant tribes. If you could kind of break down for us uh, the various giant tri tribes that purposely settled in this covenant land of Canaan, uh, to strategically position themselves against the future nation of Israel. Uh, all the different names? Uh, yeah, kind of what were the main giant tribes? Right. So let's just again begin with uh, the uh, Anakim. Um, and those are the ones that you're referring to in numbers uh, that is um, referring, that the Israelites are referring, they look like insects to them. And the Anakim uh, were descendants of Giants. So the Anak descend from giants, and giants goes back to Nephilim. So, but in other verses, we read like in Deuteronomy 2 that the Anakim are also known as Rephaim. So the quick genealogy is, is that uh, you have Anakim, Rephaim, Nephilim as the parents. And so if you branch out from Rephaim, that Anakim are descendants of uh, Rephaim, and then you read in other verses where you have the Horim and the Zamzumzim and the Emin uh, are also Rephaim. It seems to me that a branch of the giants that survive into the flood sort of go back to Rephaim just as Og is Rephaim, right? Um, and they all seem to be kind of part of that, except for maybe the Amalekites. They may have a different strain of giant in there, but they could also be Raphaim because that's a little bit unclear. And it would also seem that the offspring of Timna, who is a Horim with uh, uh, Eliphaz, as I recall, um, who produced Am Amalek, takes the name of the giant name that goes back in, into prehistory. And... So those would be sort of the name, the main names that we get out. There's there's a couple more, but oh, there, there's the Avim, which is very important to understand as well. Those are the ones that live amongst the Philistines. Incredible. And you kind of mentioned what some of these um, giant tribe names mean, like Anak means long-necked, the Zamzu mites mean noisemakers, kind of, again, referring back to that Josephus quote that they were horrible to the hearing of the ear. Um, so it's just crazy to think about. I love how you, in your book, you call it the Nephilim Wars. And so yes. I guess backing up for a minute, we've got God wiping out the earth with a flood, which when we look deeper into this, there's actually, it's because of these giant demigods. Um, and then we've got, the, you know, we've got Joshua and Caleb being told to wipe out the inhabitants of Canaan who are actually led and probably mostly inhabited by these giant tribes that are not just human. 
And so it just, it's a totally different spin on the story. Um, what percentage would you say of these giant tribes did Joshua and Caleb exterminate? Is there a percentage you can put on that? In terms of how many of those peoples were, were destroyed? I would say... Well, we, we, yeah, because we know they, they didn't destroy all of them, yeah, correct? that's true. And they didn't destroy all of the giants, and they didn't destroy all of the, the hybrid peoples that intermarried with them. So Amorites would be a very tall nation, but they were offspring of, of the giants. And so you would have had Rephaim kings ruling over them, like Og and, and Sihon, as example. Um, but they weren't as pure as this, this, uh, this other line. So... Um, and they didn't exterminate them outside of the covenant land as well, right? So the ones that would have lived outside there would, would have still survived. So, but within the geographical area, I would say they probably wiped out about 80% of them, just my own estimate. They did a lot. Um, and it took, uh, you know, years and years and years of perpetual war. In fact, uh, to the point where Joshua becomes so tired in old age that, you know, they're just tired of perpetual war. Um, but they would have wiped out a lot, but they didn't wipe them all out. And they certainly didn't wipe out the five Avite kingdoms of the Philistines. And there was also pockets all around. But, I mean, the number of kings and armies and cities that they wiped out is astonishing. But this is not a slaughter of for the purpose of bloodthirsty slaughter. These giants purposely moved into the covenant land because they knew that was the prized land of God. And they were violating that and waiting in ambush for the Israelite nation to be born, raised and come back. And what they were attempting, just as the Amalekites were attempting to do is wipe the Israelites from the face of the earth. And because we, if we understand that, then we understand, we have to ask, well, why would they want to wipe them from the face of the earth? Because Israel is brought in as a nation of priests to deliver the Messiah to uh, be atoned for all the sins, antediluvian and postdiluvian of all humankind, so that we might be raised above humans in the future time, raised above angels in the future time. And so they're going to try and prevent that. And... They're also going to try and inherit the blessings thereof through the Esau line and intermarried through Amalekites of the Messianic birthright and blessings and covenant blessings that come with it. So there was this whole sort of political thing going on from the spurious forces to try and wipe Israel out. But they laid there for centuries in patient wait to try and defeat the people of hope and destiny from completing their commission. Well, so much there to think about, to research. Uh, I love how you tied that all in. Let's talk about some of the specific giants mentioned in the Bible. Um, you say that the giant king known as Og of Bashan had an iron bed 13 feet long and was the last survivor of the Rephites. Please tell us a little bit more about King Og. Yeah, and that is a very interesting reference, the last survivor. Um, and, uh, you know, that's recorded in uh, Deuteronomy 
13, 11 to 13 and Joshua 12, 4. So that's more than just one account. And so King Og was uh, a very obviously famous giant because he's the one who's going to fight against Moses um, and Joshua at, just before they're going to cross the Jordan. But what happens first is, is Moses goes through the land of Og's brother Sihon um, and has a battle with them and uh, kills Sihon, wipes out the army. Og comes in support of his brother and uh, same thing happens to Og. And so this was a one of the most famous people of early post-Diluvian epoch. I mean, he was a great warrior, a great knowledgeable person. He's written them. We have archaeology um, supporting um, that reign and in that area, uh, and particularly referring to the Rephaim, just as you have the Wheel of the Rephaim, which is also known as the Wheel of the Ghost, which is another meaning for the demon spirits of the Rephaim. And so this is a very powerful king, before they even cross the Jordan and they defeat two of them. And they're the leader of the Amorites as well. As we mentioned, they are hybrid beings or offspring of the giants. But it's that word, the last surviving of the, of the uh, Rephaim that is very important to understand because as we did the connections before about who the Rephaim were and how they connect to Nephilim and all these other races are Nephilim, and that when Joshua is going to cross the flood, he's going to fight all of these other Rephaim, whether or not they're Anakim or Avim who, or whoever. And in the time of Goliath, in the time of David, you know, over 400 years later, Goliath is from Rapha, Rephaim, as it goes back to Hebrew, as you take that word giant. And that's part of the Avim group out of the five uh, city-states of, of, of the Philistines. And so clearly he's not the last Rephaim. So what does that mean? Does that mean he's the last original, either produced after the flood or survived the flood of, of the original giants? I think that's what it's pointing at. And that's why it's so important. And it's there in three different verses. So it's not there out of just a sort of a penman's anecdotal note that doesn't have importance because it's recorded three times. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Incredible. You write about uh, the most famous giant in the Bible, uh, Goliath, king of Gath, who led the Philistines and was about 10 feet plus tall or more. And he belonged to a family of giants. Please expound on the origins of Goliath. Yeah, and we get this um, out of Jewish legend that connects in with uh, Scripture. And uh, who I'm referring to are these Jewish legends, not necessarily the Kabbalah, even though they'll have similar accounts. Uh, I preferred on the Jewish legend to refer to Lewis Ginsburg, who collected all of the Jewish legends. And some, you know, they match up quite well with the Bible, but they do stray and probably embellish to a certain degree. But they look at uh, 
Goliath being from uh, a, a relative of David um, and connected through Ruth. And Orpah originally travels with Ruth back to Israel, um, but then decides she doesn't want to live there and goes back uh, to her homeland. And she sees a shining, powerful being a descendant of the angels ride through and is instantly awestruck with this individual and marries her. And she's the daughter of a king, Oprah is. So um, again, royalty marrying royalty. And she produces four or five sons, depending on which legend that you're going to produce. And one of them is Goliath. And so this actually makes Goliath and David related because Ruth is in the descendancy of, of uh, David and Ruth and Orpah are related. Um, but of course, I'm not suggesting David is giant because I'm, I'm clearly putting through where this offspring came from, from, from this uh, fallen angel. And what's interesting is, is that you have five rulers of the Avin city-state empire. And when David goes to fight with Goliath, he picks up not one smooth stone, but five smooth stones. And I think that if God was with David that day, and he was, he would ensure one stone was going to be enough. Uh, and it is. And David cuts his head off after knocking Goliath out. But I think he took the other four stones because he was fearful that the other four leaders would come out and want to fight with him afterwards. So he was going to be prepared to take on all five giant leaders. And we never hear of these other giants with the Philistines. We only hear of Goliath. And we also understand that there was many other Avim or giants that were part of the Philistine armies that would have been part of the armies that day and that are later killed by David and his mighty men afterwards after David comes to kingship and wipes out most of the, the giants that we're aware of and the balance of the Amalekites uh, for attacking Israel way back during the time of Exodus as part of his kingship covenants. Incredible. It's incredible to think about these, uh, these giant tribes, you know, the Philistines, for example, led by Goliath. And we know that God um, outlawed you know, child sacrifice and the spilling of blood. Um, but it's crazy to equate how if you were a human living back in those days and you went into the Philistine camp, Goliath was literally seen as this giant demigod, this half God, half man creature. Um, who wouldn't you, would you agree he most likely probably ate children? I would think so. Uh, they did the worst abominations. Um, they were, I mean, if you look at what, how David was approaching Goliath, he was approaching him like he was a spiritual beast and had nothing good to say about them. These were beings that were the enemies of humankind. They looked at us as, in, in, as uh, inferior, as sub whatever hybrid human they were, and that we were only good for servitude ritual sacrifice, eating and drinking our blood. And both were significant tributes of the antediluvian epoch 
And we take it from that that they continued these traits because they continued all of their other ways after the flood. Yeah, because, you know, I always thought in reading the scriptures, you know, how uh, even the Israelites got caught up in, you know, sacrificing children. You picture them bringing their child to, you know, some statue yeah. or some, you know, stone god when in reality it could have been a living giant that was cannibalistic and consuming these sacrifices. Yeah, let me connect those dots a little bit for the for the audience. So the Nephilim outside of Israel were the kings and they start these royal dynasties and they're in partnership with the mystical religions and everybody knows you know the magi out of mesopotamia and the powerful priests out of egypt these are the same religions and the same organizational structure and the nephilim king was known as um, what we would know as a priest king or a fisher king as it comes down through grail mythology that was both a priest and a king in most cases and if somebody reads the lost king of book og they claim og was a priest king as well this would just i'm not saying it's an accurate book i'm just saying that is how they were believed to be. And as a priest king of the bloodline of the gods, they were the gods' representative and messenger on the earth with the divine right to rule. So they would be continuing on these rituals. Now, if we understand what the Canaanite pantheon looks like, that starts with the uh, generic name for god, El, which was a morbid, lustful, violent fallen angel who mated with human females he creates Baal um, and uh, Mot is another one of his sons and also the son of Baal is Molech now Molech is the god that is the choice of worship at the time that these kings would have been worshiping who demanded child sacrifice and this is why you have all of this Molech sort of thing going back and forth and Baal worship in the time of uh, the Israelite kingdom because this was the land of the Canaanites before. So that religion wasn't wiped out. And this is what infected the Israelites, which is why God had instructed them to get rid of all of the idols, get rid of all of the people, keep it clean. Otherwise you will be infected. So interesting. Um, the book of Enoch states how the Nephilim corrupted everything, even animals. You've kind of hit on that. In chapter 83, I believe, of your book, you talk about, um, as you just stated, the legend of Molech, who's like, you know, this man with a bull's head. Uh, you talk about the bull of um, Minos, a hybrid uh, bullman creature who was also a child-consuming cannibal, I think, on the island of Crete. Mm -hmm. um, there's the legendary Cyclops, uh, who was said to be a giant, or these were giants with an eye around the forehead. And I find it so interesting to tie this in that, um, there's a certain type of ancient megalithic architecture known as um, Cyclopean masonry. Yeah. Um, that's found, especially in the Turkey area uh, of the world. And, you know, when you study the oral traditions of these, a lot of these megaliths and the Cyclopean masonry, it's connected to giant giants who built this stuff. And, uh, and I, I went to Peru this last year and got to see some of these megaliths up close. And if you haven't seen, I mean, we're talking precision cut megaton megalithic mortarless blocks that are so 
so fine you can't fit a human hair through them. And uh, we're talking, some of these are 50 tons, 100 tons or more in weight, um, literally made with some kind of lost ancient high technology that our greatest modern engineering today uh, can't replicate. Um, and it's crazy when you go to Peru and you go to Machu Picchu and Alente Tambo and uh, PSAC, all these great archaeological sites, you know, uh, if you don't know any better, you're just told this was built by the Inca. But when you look closer, you see that everywhere the Inca went underneath the foundation is this megalithic art architecture, which looks far superior. Um, and interestingly enough, was all uh, destroyed. That's why there's only the foundations left by some ancient cataclysm, um, which I believe was most likely the flood. So um, do you believe that correlation, Gary, of megalithic architecture with this lost ancient technology on a massive scale, two giants? Yeah, I think there could be two levels of uh, ancient architecture. Um, typically, if you get into polytheist religions and uh, mythologies, is, is the first ancient cities um, were all built by the gods before um, humans were created. And then afterwards, and particularly as you start moving into uh, secret society and Freemasonry legends and history, is that the seven sacred sciences um, that were taught to Adam, uh, learned by Cain um, and expanded by Enoch, son of Cain, not Enoch, son of Seth, and down to Lamech and Tuval Cain, that they developed these seven sacred sciences along with the watchers, along with the angels and the illicit uh, knowledge from heaven to uh, a level that I had mentioned earlier in the show is probably greater than what we have today, which would testify to some of these monuments, and that the Freemasons and other groups in the Middle East, especially in Arabian mythology, they will equate the technology and the knowledge to build the pyramids and, um, you know, the Great Pyramid in particular to Enoch. Um, he's known by different names in, in, in different um, uh, cultures, but they all take him back to the Bible of uh, the Enoch of the Bible, but not of Seth, of the seven sacred sciences, and that in many of these accounts, they had giants working with them, um, but not necessarily were all of the labor. They were part of the labor. I think they had developed their technology to a level that would have enabled them to do that with the help of the angels. And if we look at how fast our technology is developing today, and you, you add into it, many people think this is, is what's going on today, is that our knowledge is being advanced and enhanced by fallen angels. And that was going on in the past. How fast could that technology advance and how far did it go in one or 200 years? And we know these giants were around for hundreds of years. Wow. Well, one more question for you today and then I'll let you go. I know you're a very busy guy and, um, we, we touched on some of this earlier, but all over the world, uh, giant bones, giant skulls have been unearthed, uh, ranging mostly from probably 7 to 11 feet in length, often found with red hair, extra digits, double rows of teeth. Um, you can do a search of old newspaper headlines from 
the late 1800s into like the 1930s and read reports about giant discoveries, you know, really found all over almost every state in uh, the U.S. about these giant discoveries. And these bones were usually taken to the universities to be studied and then never really seen again. Um, amongst the many fakes that are on the internet, there are a handful of uh, genuine photographs, I believe, of giant skeletons that people have uh, taken, of giant mummies. Um, we talked about in uh, Paracas, Peru, and some other places, these elongated skulls with red hair have been unearthed. Um, they're about a thousand years old, I believe. And DNA analysis on some of them has actually verified the elongation, as you stated earlier, wasn't just caused by a cranial deformation, but rather it's genetic in that, and I think this is so important to point out, that the skull's cranial volume is up 25% larger and 60% heavier than conventional human skulls, um, meaning cradle headboarding can't create more mass, as you said. Um, and then it just as recently as last year, um, by, uh, Brian Forster um, from Peru has revealed the discovery of some infant-looking um, humanoids uh, that died in the womb and had these massive elongated skulls. Again, proving it couldn't have been cradle headboarding. It was genetic. And they're about 800 to 1,000 years old. Um, so I guess in closing, um, to me, that seems to be some pretty uh, decent evidence that we can actually see and touch and measure um, that connects us back to the genesis of giants and the Nephilim wars. And uh, any closing thoughts on this possible evidence we have today connecting it to the giants of Genesis? Well, I think it is the giants of Genesis. And so, you know, as we talked about earlier, you have these two main colors of hair in the Peruvian skulls and North American skulls. They tend to be related with red hair, which is that red hair hazelite sort of variation of, of, of these Nephilim. And, what we also get is DNA results taking it back to European and Middle East, and particularly Scottish, um, um, tracking back through history on DNA. And so we have two possibilities here. I think you have that after the flood, you either have uh, more races around the world surviving, or you have these giants being driven out of the Middle East, who, according to more European legends, whether or not it's uh, Greek, whether or not it is uh, Iris with Tuatha Danan, whether or not it's uh, other Celtic, uh, Northern German, Scandinavian, Scottish, have these waves of these giants like Gog and Magog and Albion and Brutus and all these other ones migrating in different waves with different names like uh, Cimmery and Trojans and, and, and as such moving over to France and to England. 
uh, and then either moving, being pushed out from there, perhaps again over to the new world, or it's a separate branch. I think it's probably being pushed out of the Middle East. I think the source of the giants of what we see surviving have this Middle East connection, whether it's through Scythia, whether it's through Tartarus, through legend and escaping from the prison the giants were put in for rebelling afterwards. Um, but I am open to the possibility that there are other ones survived around the earth uh, with the flood as well, either through help of fallen angels or on arcs or on mountains. There's many different sort of stories on that, but I think um, they are probably part of the same ones that are, that are from the Middle East, I think. Well, Gary, thank you so much uh, for your time today. This has been so insightful for me and I know for many that are watching and um, I would tell everybody watching, please go to Genesis6Conspiracy.com. That's six, the number six, Genesis6Conspiracy.com. Uh, and there you can find um, all of Gary's social media channels to follow. Um, get on Facebook and get up and, and get join his Facebook group. It's very informative. People post a lot of great content. And of course, Gary um, has a lot of cool um, Facebook posts with pictures that he adds often that I really enjoy. Uh, they're kind of like mini little books <laughs> that you post. <laughs> so uh, follow his Facebook uh, group, follow his Facebook page, Twitter, um, but most of all, buy his book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Uh, it's an incredible book, and he goes way more in depth on all these topics that we've discussed, and way more. Uh, you will get your money's worth. And um, and also, please share this video if you enjoyed it. And so, Gary, thank you so much. Well, thank you uh, for having me. It was a, a wonderful time talking about this subject. And I think um, just as you do, I, I love talking about this to topic. And for anybody that's out there, if they do have a question, do get a hold of me either through my website or through Facebook or through Twitter. And uh, I, if you have a question, I will get back to you on it. Thanks, Gary. Keep up the great work, and we'll do this again soon. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed part two of this interview. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you are listening from, and give us a good rating on iTunes if you enjoyed it. Thanks for joining me, and until next time, keep exploring.